Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Richard Osijo of the City University of New York, Associate Professor of Sociology. And we are joined today by Steve Vaselli, who is a political sociologist and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about his new book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Richard. Thank you. All right, great. So I was wondering to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your uh, background and how you came to sociology. Yeah, well, I, I started graduate school in sociology um, in uh, 2002 at Indiana University. I got my PhD there, and I was I was interested in understanding the intersection of uh, the labor movement and the environmental movement. I had had a background in environmental work around climate change. And I uh, ended up at IU studying uh, class and and work, trying to understand the intersection between environmental um, concerns and and labor concerns. Great, and I guess that's how you came to write this book, then. Yeah, I was doing my um, <clears throat> qualifying exams in class and work, and had just read a whole bunch of literature about how you get blue collar workers to work really hard, and then I was on my way home. Um, for the holidays, riding on the interstate and thinking about different literatures on on how you manage workers and you know uh, pacing workers with assembly lines and the meaning of work for for different kinds of workers. And I thought, you know, here's this group of workers out there who's getting up at sunrise, um, working past sunset, with no one directly supervising them. You know, why were why were truckers working so hard? Was sort of the first first question I asked myself, and I just recently read a news report about um, GPS tracking using satellite-linked computers on the trucks, and I thought, you know, this has got to be um, something that's going to affect the way these workers see their sense of autonomy, which was supposedly one of the things that attracted workers to the industry. And so that was really the initial 
question that I had about truck driving. I'd never had any interest in the industry really before. Um, had very little knowledge of it. <clears throat> um, and then what happened was as soon as I got into the, the topic, I very quickly learned the story of deregulation and the way that that had transformed the industry. And I, again, thinking about class consciousness and work, started to think, well, there's got to be um, a lot to learn here about how workers understand neoliberalism and, and deregulation, given the given the history of the industry, which was one in which, you know, wages had dropped by 40% and, you know, the Teamsters unit had been completely eliminated from the industry. So I, I felt that there had to be some really rich um, opportunities there for understanding how workers come to understand economic relations. I really got a lot out of your book. Um, I think like most people, I don't think very much about truck drivers, but they're obviously ubiquitous and we always see them on the roads, but never really think anything about what they're doing. And I think your, your insights really, really, uh, helped give a perspective on this, this occupation. And what I, what I love is how in the preface you really lay out your goals of the book, uh, namely to, to use the sociological imagination to uh, show the truck driving experience to examine today's labor market and to contribute to trucking related public policy. Uh, we'll get to this later in all this in the interview in more depth, but I was wondering if you just quickly say uh, a little bit about those, uh, those goals for how you set up the book. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was a long process actually figuring out what that meant <laughs> in practice, starting with an ethnography and then building out to, trying to understand not just the larger labor market process that was going on, but how that process, how the processes in the labor market of, you know, educating workers about opportunities and then getting them to work hard in jobs and make certain employment decisions down the road, which were all topics that I became interested in fairly quickly um, as I was designing the research. Uh, it, it was really hard to figure out, okay, what does this actually mean in terms of me as a researcher going out and answering these questions? And so the first part of, of the research was actually orienting myself to the experiences that workers had by, by getting a job as a truck driver. Um, and then beyond that, you know, it was, I, I was very fortunate in that um, truck driving is uh, the kind of place where workers from different companies interact with each other. They're fairly accessible. In fact, they're very accessible compared to other workers. I could go to a truck stop and meet sort of the the range of different truck drivers who were using, you know, just the fuel pumps, um, and and pretty much everybody has to use them. So it was virtually a random, you know, sample that would come through any given any geography of where workers were working. Um, and then I was able to build onto that. Um, uh, or from that, a labor and understanding of the labor market, um, wide processes that all truck drivers were experiencing. And then I was able to sort of layer onto that <clears throat> the historical aspect of, um, of how had these processes changed over time. Um, and so that was really the, the goal was to try to understand, you know, how, how, how can we make sense of the, the way that workers have viewed the labor market and its changes over time um, after deregulation, after deunionization, 
and how that affects, you know, essentially the story became how that affects everything from the way that they understand their pay structure to the way that they understand class relations within the industry. And, and that had one, then I realized that had important, you know, um, uh, answers for people who are interested in a whole range of different, different things concerned with truck driving. And, and because truck driving is work that happens in a public space, in particular, it happens on public roadways. It has many more stakeholders who are interested, who are more intensely interested in what's happening in it, whether it's, you know, folks who are worried about, you know, air, air quality in urban areas or um, highway safety advocates um, or folks who are just interested in, you know, the employment side of it itself and the social safety net impacts or, um, you know, the quality of life for workers and their families. Yeah, and you, you, really dive into the experiences right away. So in the intro, you you start with a story from your own experience as a trucker, and you really show your frustrations quite well at getting $56 for 16 hours of work, which is $350 an hour. And you, you really use this episode then to, uh, to introduce trucking as what Caliber calls it a bad job, right? Something that is low pay, has long hours, has poor working conditions. But the key here is that this wasn't always the case with trucking. It was once among the best working class jobs in the United States. So you mentioned deregulation, but tell us a little bit about how that uh, came about and what this story tells us about labor markets today. Yeah. So, you know, I, I knew the overarching you know, trajectory of trucking jobs when I started. I knew that they had been a job heavily influenced by collective bargaining by the by the Teamsters Union, um, and that the that the industry had been deregulated and deunionized, and that now workers were um, operating what what one economist called sweatshops on wheels. But that um, first experience of driving a truck and really <laughs> getting to know in in uh, in intimate ways and in a firsthand way. The experience of having all of these inefficiencies of the industry kind of put onto your paycheck in a certain sense where if the load didn't <clears throat> wasn't ready on time and you were sitting at the dock, you weren't paid, even if that was, you know, a, a day and a half <laughs> where you would go unpaid, the company essentially telling you, oh, you're not working. Um, so don't worry about the fact that you're not getting paid because, you know, you're only working if you're driving. Well, that turned out to be a very you know, specific kind of idea that workers had about whether or not they should be paid. And I am, and as a worker initially, I kind of accepted it. <clears throat> this is how you get paid. And I started to question, you know, well, <laughs> shouldn't I get paid for these days that I'm out on the road, not working. I started to talk to other workers about it afterwards, interviewing them and realized that, you know, there <clears throat> lots of workers didn't see that as work that they should get compensated for, for instance. And so I then talked to more experienced workers who told me, you know, those are only the new workers who feel that way. And from that, I was able to kind of figure out the way that, you know, workers had thought about the industry in the past um, using historical research afterwards, but also talking to more experienced workers. And what I found was really that, that, you know, that influence of the union, the collective bargaining, the regulation of the industry and the culture of the workers um, their beliefs about it still stuck with those older workers. They still believe that, you know, you should get paid for all the time that you work or even you should get paid for all the time that you're 
on the road. Um, but they had lost control of that labor market. Um, there was a very strong push from the right over years to deregulate trucking ever since the regulation began in the 1930s. And they had built a case around one single question as the economist asked it, which were what, what were the costs of this regulation that the government had in place, which basically suggested or, or regulated how it was that freight moved and customers were charged for the movement of that freight. So if you were a trucking company, you had to get a federal authority to haul a particular kind of good to and from a particular location. So it might be furniture from North Carolina to New York City. And you would have to have a federal license for that. And you and other companies that had that license were allowed to collectively set rates. And those rates would ensure profitability for you. Usually 94% of your, um, you could charge uh, up to 94% above or 6%. You'd get 6% profit on your, above your operating costs. And what that meant was that companies could pass along the increased costs of, of wages negotiated by the Teamsters Union, which had very quickly after regulation organized the whole, um, the whole industry. And that, that system worked really well for both workers and, and their employers. Um, economists who were oftentimes funded by large shippers like Sears and Roebuck and others, who wanted cheaper and more flexible transportation costs, transportation services not constrained by these federal licenses, uh, continually lobbied over the course of decades to get the industry deregulated. And in the stagflation of the 1970s, uh, Jimmy Carter and and uh, a real bipartisan coalition in Congress came to, to believe that the costs of regulation, as they had been identified by um, by these conservative economists made sense uh, or justified deregulating the industry in, in the name of uh, benefits to consumers. And so they fairly rapidly removed the requirements uh, beginning in, in 1980. And what happened was just cutthroat competition that drove rates down um, in some cases uh, up to 70% discounts on the, on the cost of moving freight prior to deregulation, which was not sustainable. <clears throat> um, and so lots of companies went bankrupt. Lots of companies, uh, you know, abandoned their, their union contracts. Um, and the, the industry very quickly became a very low road, low cost kind of um, industry where labor really took the brunt of, of the competitive pressures. And so by the time, um, you know, a decade or so, within a decade or so of, of deregulation, the industry was already experiencing a severe labor crisis where they couldn't maintain the, uh, the supply of labor because the working conditions and, and, and pay were, were so low. Mm. And so this is basically where we are now. So uh, tell us a little bit then who the people actually are who become truck drivers. You, you give some, some nice quick bios of several people in the first chapter who attend a commercial driver's license school. And they really represent a very wide variety of working class backgrounds for the most part. So what leads them to want to become a truck driver in the first place? Yeah. So it was, it was an incredibly diverse um, group of, of folks that I met both in my own training and then in other trainings. 
um, that I was able to observe. And, and then of course, during my interviews, I would, I would ask about recruitment and training of the, of the folks that I interviewed. Um, and from those, you know, different data sources, I, I, I very quickly learned that it's an incredible range of folks who are attracted to the industry. Um, and, you know, in a, in a sense, of course, all of them have their own individual story that leads them there. Uh, but I found a couple different groupings really made made good sense of, of who it was and, and why they were there. Um, so as I described it, about a third of the folks that I interviewed kind of fell into the industry. They were doing some kind of work where they were either operating trucks or heavy equipment or working in a warehouse. They were They were one step away from the trucking industry. And so truck driving became sort of a natural um, option for them that they had thought about regularly and they, you know, had lots of time to plan um, and think about why they wanted to do it, et cetera. And those workers tended to be in a little bit better position. They tended to be older and have been in the industry for longer, um, had a little bit better jobs typically. Another third of, of the folks that I interviewed were, were pushed into the industry as I describe it, which is, you know, they were downwardly mobile, um, typically manufacturing or other kinds of manual blue collar workers who could no longer do the job that they had been doing. Um, and typically, again, they were downsized maybe from a plant that had, um, that had closed or they physically couldn't do uh, a difficult job like being a carpenter or plumber, uh, heating and air conditioning, installing something like that. We're getting up there in age perhaps, um, but had a, had a decent income you know, maybe above $40,000 a year that they wanted to maintain and couldn't maintain where they lived in the, in the kinds of jobs that were available to them, which were typically now service jobs. And so they went to truck driving to maintain a standard of living or an income level. And then the final third were, were workers that I describe as being pulled into the industry. And these were typically low-wage service workers who, you know, were making a few dollars above minimum wage, typically, um, who were attracted by the promise of, of significantly higher wages in truck driving. And unfortunately for these workers, um, they were the least prepared for the work schedules and work routines. And so, yes, you can earn as a starting driver in truck driving you know, $35,000 in your first year or something like that, you have to work usually above 80 hours per week. Um, mm -hmm. And whereas some of those workers who are more familiar with the industry or who were blue collar manual workers who were used to long, flexible job schedules where you would kind of work on and off over a, you know, 12 or 14 hour period, who pretty quickly adapted to the, to the basic work hours the service workers weren't, didn't really have any job experience that had prepared them for, for what life was like as a truck driver. Yeah. And then you, as you describe it, the, the commercial driver's license school is basically like a mill. It, it churns out students who get hired cheaply and today after they leave the school, uh, they leave the business then soon after they start it often, uh, which then leads companies to invest even more in training. So, why do companies prefer this churn them out strategy and, and what are some of the larger consequences of it? Yeah. So they do, uh, <clears throat> they do pull in a ton of workers. Uh, now things have changed a little bit since the great recession in which companies, you know, close schools, 
um, and are just now uh, reopening these CDL mills. And what these are, are kind of like a, a boot camp style job training uh, where you come in, you're there for two weeks. And what the company is really doing is it's, it's giving you a little bit of training in terms of operating the truck, but, but they're not hiring you, which is one of those things that workers really don't understand when they first get into this is the CDL school, even though most of them at a commercial driver's license school, even though they're hosted by or run by these large trucking companies, there's, there's almost never a guarantee of employment when you start that training. In fact, what there is is a, an agreement that the workers sign, um, which some are more or less aware of when they arrive, um, to pay for the training. Typically, this costs somewhere uh, more than $4,000. And I've, I've uh, heard anywhere from $4,000 to $7,000 for different workers. Um, and what happens is, you know, you may, you may quit a job. You may be unemployed, which is not uncommon. Um, or you may quit a job to go to this school and you, you know, get on a bus. Typically, they'll send you a bus ticket. Um, they'll pay for it um, or reimburse you. And you might travel, you know, 200, 400 miles from home. You show up at this, you know, industrial facility with a cafeteria and, and maybe a, a motel nearby. And the company will have a block of rooms there. You show up, you sign this contract that you haven't seen before um, that says, we're going to train you. There's no guarantee of employment at the end of this. If we hire you, then you'll have to work for us for typically a year um, or else you have to pay us back the cost of this training. If we don't hire you, you have to pay us the cost of the training. <laughs> but if we hire you, you and you work for us for a year, you won't have to pay for it. And again, this is anywhere from four to $7,000 and they'll charge, you know, 24.9% interest um, on that on that loan. So that's kind of how workers start out the training. Um, and then you'll have usually two weeks or so where you're being evaluated, constantly surveilled by trainers as they teach you how to shift the truck. Now more trucks are, be, are that are coming in are now automatics and manuals, but some, uh, some challenging uh, tasks for a lot of people to learn how to operate the machinery. It's very large. Um, <laughs> you have to be very careful with it right um so lots of safety concerns etc and they're they're observing all of that but they're also observing you as you as you work what turn out to be very long days in this training so you know in, in my own training i would get up you know 5 five thirty in the morning um we would be you know taken by shuttle from the motel to um to the training facility we'd you know be back and forth between the truck and the classroom um, learning map reading and how to log our hours of service, which are the um, the rules for how you um, uh, record your work hours to make sure you're in compliance with the federal laws that govern that. Um, you're sort of doing this, you know, back and forth between the truck and classroom for, you know, somewhere around 12 hours, um, and then you're sent home with homework. And, you know, what the company's allowed to do over that two-week you know, quote unquote training period is to evaluate you and decide whether they want to hire you um, at your own expense. <laughs> and so, so the, the CDL mill has these huge advantages for, for the employer. And again, under regulation, this was not the case. The Teamsters Union would have controlled the training of new workers through their existing members. Um, so you would have been trained by a Teamsters member um, on the job you know, almost as a truck driving apprentice of sorts uh, before you gained access to the union and thus 
to the job. So employers have taken over that, you know, part of, of the, um, of the labor, you know, of the labor market, both entry into the job and then initial training. And it allows them to weed out workers they don't want. Um, and it allows them to shift a lot of costs. And so this is one of the reasons that, that companies have moved to this model is they get to weed out these workers and then they get to use public subsidies for worker retraining, which is a big, which is a big part of, um, what funds these CDL schools is that workers who may have recently been unemployed, uh, who may have access to the GI bill, um, uh, GI bill funds because they're veterans. Uh, workers who've been affected by um, trade uh, or have access to Pell Grants um, can use these funds to pay for um, for worker training. And so these trucking companies use this public subsidy to um, offload the cost of their of their you know very high turnover that results from the poor working conditions. They get to publicly subsidize subsidize that and just one of the ways that these companies end up maintaining what I argue is sort of an artificially low wage. Um, so they, they get to, you know, um, shift all these costs to workers and their families who may end up with some of the debt if they end up leaving, which, which many of them do, um, or onto the public, under the public dollar. Mm, and I found it really interesting how, how much the anti-union perspective really gets driven in, uh, no pun intended, during the, during the training. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, going in to the study and, you know, again, knowing in sort of broad strokes the, the union history, um, but just at the kind of start of it, um, I was surprised how little the workers talked about unions and how, at least the new ones in the training, but how much the company did. <laughs> um, even though there didn't seem to be any immediate union presence or threat, and it turns out there isn't. Um, you know, in the years since I started training and continued to do the research, um, you know, I've realized there's really no, uh, there's never been an attempt since deregulation of the um, Teamsters Union to reorganize this this industry, at least a segment. I'm sorry. So we should be clear that this is over the road truckload segment. So this is the bulk of, of drivers who are moving stuff long distances, you know, for Walmart or Target or other big box stores or Major, major manufacturers, Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, um, you know, huge chunks of the fortune 500, you know, the, the big shipments of goods that they are moving around are being moved by this, you know, the, the kind of driver that I talk about in the book. Um, and so it is the largest segment employing about 600,000, um, drivers and, you know, the team used to be completely unionized, um, and the Teamsters Union has not made an attempt to to unionize it since deregulation in 1980. But the companies are still very concerned um, ab- about the potential for for workers to organize. Um, that's very apparent to to more experienced drivers who see the subtle ways in which, um, as they argue it, uh, workers are kind of kept stirred up and separated. Um, but in particular through um, independent contracting, which uh, allows the companies to sort of separate workers out from one another uh, in terms of compensation packages, et cetera, but also gets to sort of realign the way that workers see their interests um, in something like unionization or some compensation package as very different from what employees have. 
And of course, independent contractors, you know, do not also do not have the right to to unionize. Um, though in the past, independent contractors were members of the Teamsters Union. Um, today, it's argued they they don't have the legal right to uh, to unionize. Um, but what the book really talks about is how that independent contractor status and the reason that people choose it and the sort of thinking that goes along with it really causes them to see their interests as more aligned oftentimes with the company um, than with their fellow um, truck drivers who are working as employees. And that's largely because these independent contractors are, are working as, um, as their own small business or see themselves as their own small business. They're responsible for paying all the costs associated with operating the truck so this would be a truck payment, insurance, fuel, et cetera. And so they're, they may be very concerned as they were in one period of the research that I talk about toward the end of the book. They may be very concerned about the price of fuel um, going up because they're responsible for it. Uh, whereas the employee drivers don't care what fuel price is because uh, they're not, they're not paying for it. Um, and it's, it's just sort of the most basic example. When, when I went through an interviews kind of um, talking with, with drivers about what the major challenges were that they faced or who their allies were. Um, they would employees and independent contractors would identify completely different sets of, of uh, economic factors or actors that they saw as, as important. Um, so employees would focus on the company <laughs> as the sort of root of their low pay and poor treatment. Whereas independent contractors um, would have a range of different folks that they might blame, but Oftentimes it was the government and government regulation that they they resented and saw as kind of the root of their their suffering. Yeah, independent contracting certainly looms large in the book because it's such a goal for so many of these workers. And you talk about how what really encourages them to become independent contractors is to get greater control over their work. And you use Burroway's classic concept to describe trucking as being like a like a miles game. And if I can quote you briefly on page 86, you say the long haul trucking game produces a fetishistic obsession with mileage that often obscures other possible considerations, such as the number of hours worked or the consequences of neglecting sleep and the basic strategy of the game requires prioritizing driving over everything else in pursuit of miles, close quote. And you show how this is largely an illusion. As I said at the beginning, one of the first questions I, that came into my mind, the very first question was, you know, why do these drivers work so hard? Um, and, you know, I had, I had read my Burvoy right before that. <laughs> um, and it turned out he had the answer for that, uh, for that, um, <laughs> that question, which was that, you know, they, they work so hard, because of the compensation scheme and the, and the way that that compensation scheme is, is sort of built into the labor process or plays out through the labor process. And so these drivers are only paid for the miles that they drive. And you might get some accessory pay, they call it, where you're, you get paid a little bit for each stop that you make to load or unload. But more than 90% of the pay is mileage pay. And so a typical driver today might get 34 cents a mile, 35 cents a mile. Um, for some of these newer drivers, they may still be in the high 20s, low 30s per mile. And so what you end up doing is you end up sort of figuring out what's the, what's the way that I can put in the least amount of effort and get the most um, compensation 
out of of this. And so they organize it in a Bervoian game where they treat, you know, the rules that management has set out as well as the, you know, because again, because it's a public space, the sort of uh, legal requirements of driving safely, et cetera, um, which again, their work hours overall are supposed to be governed by these federal rules. Now, drivers cheat on that a lot, but um, what they end up doing is have, what they have to do is figure out how to cheat so they don't get caught. And this is a major issue right now um, with this electronic logging mandate that some of your listeners may have heard about where um, the, we have very easy ways to keep track now, given the technology on these trucks of how often these trucks are moving, where they're moving, et cetera. Um, and so there's been the potential for for some time now to very carefully and accurately monitor what these drivers are doing. And it has not been uh, used because um, the way the drivers work uh, basically encourages them to hide their work hours in order to work um, or to, in order to drive more miles. So what you end up doing is saying, um, as I used an example before, sort of sitting unpaid at docks, workers start to think themselves that this is not um, we're actually working because then they would have to record it in their logbook. <laughs> And that would take, but because it's unpaid work, it would take away from their total pay because they drive less paid miles. So when you're sitting at that dock, instead of logging that as on-duty working, as you should uh, by federal rules, because you're not paid, you log yourself as off-duty. Um, and then, you know, you end up having more hours available to to drive paid miles. And I, I you know, characterize this as self-sweating. Right, where where workers are essentially pushing themselves harder for, for really marginal economic gains, oftentimes, um, but they're fitting them, they're 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 forcing themselves to be much more flexible, maybe drive when they're tired, drive at different hours, um, stretching their workday out, because they've got these long stretches of unpaid time that break up the time when they can actually um, uh, actually earn income. And so what ends up happening is that workers want to get control over the loads that they have because loads essentially determine the amount of, of unpaid and paid work that you're going to do. So if you're, you know, driving really long distances and loading infrequently, then you're going to get more paid miles per day on the road. And so what workers want to do is get these long, you know, thousand 2,000 mile loads, which are quite uncommon. Um, but when they get them, they're wonderful. Um, and, and, and they, they start to realize after a year or so, typically six months to a year, Hey, if I just had better loads, um, I would, I would earn way more and I would work less, um, fewer hours. And so many workers will try to argue to their dispatcher to, you know, that they, want better loads or that they're not getting good enough loads. And the dispatchers will often tell them, well, the reason that you, you don't is we got to get you home. And so if you just stayed out on the work on the road longer, now the drivers that I studied and, and myself typically stay out on the road for two to three weeks at a time at a minimum. And then they can extend those kind of tours of duty longer if, if they ask um, for it. So, the dispatchers will say, hey, you know, if you stayed out on the road, you know, a month at a time, we wouldn't have to get you back to your starting location after two weeks. We wouldn't have to give you all those short loads to get you back home. Um, so why don't you stay out longer? 
So that's one of the things that drivers can do as part of the self-sweating to try to increase those those miles that they're able to run consistently per week. The other big thing that they try to do is they, they become independent contractors because independent contractors by law are supposed to have the right to choose the work that they do. And so companies, you know, write it into their contracts um, and train their dispatchers to tell these drivers that, you know, well, if you don't like the loads that you're getting, become an independent contractor, and then you don't have to haul any loads you don't want to haul. Now, that turns out to be the biggest <laughs> scam in the industry and one that's come back to bite them quite a bit um, in some class action lawsuits, which are uh, now challenging these practices. Um, and in full disclosure, I, I serve as an expert in in most of those cases now. Um, and the book is being used. Um, the research from the book is being used in those cases. Um, but that control over the work that workers do is becoming a really central issue um, in, in lots of parts of the labor market. And the story that, you know, that I tell in the book about truck driving is really um, emblematic of, of what's happening in other areas of the economy where workers are being promised, you know, flexibility and control um, in return for giving up all of the benefits and rights of, of an employment relationship um, in order to become an independent contractor. But as I, as I argue in the book, in the, in the case of truck driving in particular, um, it's really deeply rooted in the way the labor process has been organized, the way that workers experience the work of truck driving. They want that control um, because they're being set up continually to bump into the negative consequences that come from not having control over the work that they do as the job has been degraded. Um, now, of course, they used to have control over the way the job was done collectively through the Teamsters Union. But once that, you know, collective bargaining um, process was removed and, and companies essentially had free reign to determine the pay and working conditions of workers, how they were dispatched and all of that stuff, um, they created sort of the problem that they then argue independent contracting solves um, for these workers. Right. And the, the workers, they all really cling to this idea that more autonomy, more money from independent contracting. It fits very neatly with the, the American dream and the ideals of hard work and ambition. And you, you explain the illusion really as being part of this larger contracting discourse that the, the industry has essentially, uh, constructed to help, you know, fuel some of these dreams, right? Fuel some of these goals that these drivers want and what that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that I, you know, um, one of the messages or lessons in the book from, in the research for me that I, I hope the book gets across, um, particularly for, um, for researchers is that so much of what happened here was happening at the industry wide level. And so, um, I often get the question, um, from sociologists about, you know, was this really about the American dream? Is it, you know, is this just, you know, people living out this sort of neoliberal vision, et cetera. And, um, and that's crucial, right? That's a crucial set of resources out there. Um, but what's happening here and I, and, and I believe in other areas, um, and, and of course the next big one coming up is the, or happening now is the gig economy is not just that we have this idea that you could be independent or, you know, of small business and valorization of, of these sorts of things more widely in the culture, but does it make sense 
for this particular economic activity for me to do this. And that's a, <laughs> and there's a whole lot of work that has to happen in between the sort of ideas and, and cultural norms sort of up in the ether that people have about sort of an ideal situation, maybe in the abstract. And, you know, the really concrete big decisions of, do I quit this job and then take on this lease payment and start working for this company as an independent contractor rather than an employee? And what I found was that, you know, that was not being driven by differences in sort of, you know, ideology broadly that workers had. So when I interviewed workers, it wasn't that the workers who, you know, um, decided to remain employees didn't think that, you know, small business ownership would be great um, or that, you know, this was an ideal that they might aspire to. Um, It was that they didn't think it was realistic given the conditions within the industry. So the way that they understood the organization of the work and the labor market basically told them independent contracting and contracting is not, not in my interest. It's not a real thing here. Um, you know, you can buy the truck and pay for the fuel and, you know, pay the, you know, lease payments and insurance, but that's not real small business ownership. Um, and so they were still working with the same larger cultural schema that the workers who decided to be independent contractors were. But in the middle range of kind of what are the economic relations in the industry, what's the history of the industry, um, how do you actually make a profit in the industry, what determines a successful business um, versus or compared to an unsuccessful business in trucking, the workers had a very different uh, understanding of the the economic structures of the industry itself. Um, And that's what really, to be honest, when I, (laughs) I did the field work and then the interviews, And I kind of left with those questions of, or, you know, with that um, as the conclusions of, okay, there's sort of this mid range set of ideas that really determine, you know, what workers decide to do. It's not based on culture. It's not based on um, previous experience with small business. I, those were sort of my initial hypotheses for this, this part of the research. Um, And those turned out all not to, not to explain, um, the decisions that workers were making, what ended up explaining it was they had these very different, you know, senses of what, how the industry worked. Um, and I, you know, I kind of left the interviews unable to explain where those ideas came from. And then of course that was, became my obsession for figuring out how is it possible that these workers who, you know, are basically doing the same job, have essentially the same job market opportunities, have such fundamentally different understandings of of what how the industry works and what's good for them you know within it and it you know it didn't matter you know race uh gender rural urban um didn't matter whether they had been um pushed or pulled into the industry um as i described before but it did matter whether or not they had fallen into the industry whether they were close to the industry previously and what turned out to be sort of the key thing as I was coding the interviews and sort of mapping out who was who, I made basically individual cases out of each worker with their characteristics, was experience in the industry or being very close to someone else who had experience in the industry. So uh, a relative or close friend who had been in the industry long term, whether or not the, the, uh, the worker themselves had been in the industry for a certain period of time. And what I realized was that older workers, um, which brought me back to some of my initial 
you know, hypotheses about the project overall, older workers who had experienced deregulation, who had experienced union control, who were very few at that point, um, had a completely different understanding of the industry, not surprisingly. Um, but the difference between workers who had even five or 10 years had never worked under a union situation or anything like that. And workers who had one or two years of experience um, was remarkably different. There was profound differences in the way that they understood um, independent contracting. And so essentially, um, I started to hone in on on the training process and the introduction and the control of the labor market by these employers. At the same time, I realized that employers had over time um, been shifting the discourse about what an independent contractor was. Um, and that required a lot of archival work and historical work to sort of figure out how that had happened. Yeah, that's a really that's a really important part of the book, I think, because these companies, they obviously they know full well how awful uh, contracting is for the workers. And they have to really figure out how to keep contractors in the fold for as long as possible by influencing how they how they think, how they uh, behave. Uh, and how they uh, continue to hold up contracting and, and private entrepreneurship and business ownership as uh, an ideal goal. This, this hold on to this romantic view that this is part of the American dream. Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, I think another area where I hope there's value for other researchers in thinking about what, what it means to look at the industry level. And so the way that this is accomplished in, in truck driving, because you can't, as an individual employer, it's very difficult to, to tell a worker, um, hey, come, you know, do this new thing that's in our interest that no one else is doing. <laughs> um, why don't you come and work under this independent contractor relationship and make less money, even though there's some, you know, our, our competitor next door will hire you um, as an employee making more money. Um, it's very hard individually to change the way that workers who have a pretty open labor market, you know, uh, in terms of opportunities and, and ability to move, they're hard to change the way that they, they see these practices. And so what I found in doing um, the research beyond the, the interviews with drivers, but looking at sort of um, periodicals, interviewing managers, talking with um, what I assumed at first were sort of just regular labor market intermediaries, um, companies that were helping workers find, find employment, helping, um, employers find workers, you know, supposedly solving information kinds of problems that, that happen in labor markets. What I found was there was actually a, a significant coordination between these different actors in the labor market to shift the employment relations in the industry toward independent contracting. That there were a number of, of businesses that were that appeared even to drivers as sort of independent um, entities that were doing all sorts of things from, you know, covering the trucking industry in terms of news um, to tax accountants who represented themselves as as uh, tax professionals who would do um, paperwork and tax filings for for small businesses. Um, and they would represent themselves in that way to, to drivers. So drivers might pick up a magazine uh, that advertised, you know, truckers news and current events. 
um, and read a bunch of articles about what the state of independent contracting was or, you know, an article about whether or not independent contracting was a good idea for them. Um, and what they were really encountering was uh, a, a company that was sponsored in large part by a would-be employer of that of that dr- truck driver. And they had, you know, coordinated with companies over time, that coordination had become more and more sophisticated to create a portrayal of independent contracting as a long-standing continuation of the practice of owner operating, which, you know, we all sort of have, or at least uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak for the younger generations, but, you know, those who are over probably 30 have, have a, you know, um, uh, have memories of the kind of trucking culture that was represented in the 1970s and 80s in particular um, as sort of this, you know, last cowboy out driving, driving the road, um, you know, driving the, the lonely highway, um, still independent, kind of this last bastion of, of blue collar masculine, um, you know, hard work and, and honest opportunity sort of stuff. Um, very popular sort of portrayals, right, that glamorized the life of what were owner operators, not the Teamsters employee drivers, um, which were represented in a completely different way in, in popular culture. But companies tapped into that sort of legacy and basically, you know, took out all the, all the key parts about sort of independence um, and control that workers had. And so what ended up happening was um, drivers or independent contractors used to have the right to actually choose the loads that they they hauled. And one of the most important things was uh, in, in choosing the load was not necessarily the distance that it went like it is for these drivers with the miles fetish, but how much it paid per mile. And so you would, you know, you'd, we'd hold out for loads that, that paid more per mile um, or had longer mileage and higher pay. Um, and you know, they would, they would end up becoming a problem for companies who today might tell Walmart, um, yeah, we'll, we'll haul that load for you. Um, and so you agree to haul that load for Walmart as the carrier, the trucking company, and then you turn to your worker and say, haul this load. Um, well, you can't do that with an independent contractor legally. Um, and then you can't do it if they, you know, can't force them to take it if they say, no, it doesn't pay enough. And so what companies ended up doing was they they started paying independent contractors. Um, so this is one of the specific practices that really changed was they paid them a specific amount per mile, regardless of what they were hauling or what they were charging the customer. And that historically was not how owner operators work. And so this to experienced owner operators, this was, you know, a huge problem. Um, they were used to holding out for the better paying freight uh, that had higher rates per mile. And that's how they decided what they would what they would haul. Um, and so companies slowly began to shift the model to um, to pay per mile. Um, now, then, when when freight rates went went south during the Great Recession, um, and companies started to you know end up paying you know this standard rate per mile that they promised workers, uh, they promised these independent contractors, but customers were paying less per mile than that. They they again shifted the um, the model to try to encourage workers to go back to a percentage like they'd been on before, which would you know um, 
allow the companies to um, to offset their losses by shifting the, the risk to workers. So what they did was they, you know, there were a whole range of, um, you know, uh, newsletters that went out from these tax accountants and, and business advisors that told, you know, independent contractors, it's better for you to work on percentage of the load. Um, and then they had, you know, trucking magazines that profiled workers who were, you know, supposedly super successful who worked on percentage of the load rather than pay per mile. Um, and so these third, these third parties in the labor market really give the companies the ability to shape the way that independent contracting is understood by workers and really in, in, in fine detail right down to, you know, the way you should get, whether you should get paid by the mile or, um, by percentage, you know, whether or not you should get your, you know, truck maintained by the company that you, you work for or not, or what kind of lease should you have or how should you finance the truck? All, all of these you know, very specific questions that have implications for control over the workers, profitability of the company versus the worker. All of these are, are part of this larger labor market narrative that is really shaped by these third parties. Um, and for workers who are new, uh, and this is one of the criticisms that, uh, you know, some of the drivers, not, not many, but a few of the drivers who've read the book have said, well, you're just making truckers out to sound you know, like they're they're not smart enough or they're dumb because they're just getting, you know, hoodwinked by this by this uh, by this group of employers and, and third parties. And what I've argued is, you know, actually this happens all the time in labor markets. You know, why does a, uh, a maybe 16 year old girl in high school decide that nursing is the right job for her? You know, five years down the road, right? Where does the information that workers have about labor market opportunities come from and who gets to shape that and who's a partner in sort of, you know, adding legitimacy and authority to these kinds of claims. We experience these kinds of scams all the time, potentially, right? Where folks who are, you know, have greater resources and greater control um, within that interaction are able to advance their interests at the expense of others. Um, And in this case, for a new worker who's, you know, maybe never, you know, never had any family, never had any friends in the trucking industry, has recently lost a job, and now comes into the industry as a new worker and ends up experiencing this, you know, low wage, um, oftentimes less than minimum wage kind of job for 80 hours a week. When they go looking for an opportunity, um, they pick up these trucking magazines, for instance, the same way that I, as a professional researcher, picked them up. I had no idea what the connections were behind those companies. Um, I had no idea whether or not this information that was coming from from these magazines was was accurate. I had no way to assess it, um, and so I thought it. I thought that these trucking magazines were legitimate, you know, news organizations that were, you know, making money on ad revenue and you know, um, had a readership based on interest, just like, you know, other magazines I'd experienced. So, you know, this, all that's to say that the sophistication of this is, is far beyond, you know, um, what one might expect. Um, and the fact that workers are taken in by it really, really shouldn't surprise us in the absence of, you know, unions that can provide alternative sources of information, government regulation um, that ensures that information is accurate and contracts are fair and all the sorts of, <laughs> sorts of things that are that are really absent from not just trucking, but many other labor markets today. 
Well, this is a it's a fascinating book. I, I learned a lot. Readers will will surely learn a lot, uh, not just about trucking, but about the state of the labor market today. And I'm I'm very glad to hear that it's uh, being used to hopefully help to improve the way this industry is is structured and organized and the way that its workers get treated. But uh, Steve, we've taken up a lot of your time already. So I was wondering if you would just uh, just quickly tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately since uh, your research for the book finished and since you since the book's been out. Yeah. So while there are a number of lawsuits ongoing um, and uh, we may have settlements in a, a couple of the big ones soon. Um, if they, if the companies decide not to go to court because we're, um, they're, they're, they're losing, uh, <laughs> um, on the, on the merits of the cases. Um, but I'm, so I'm helping out with those. Uh, but my new research has actually split in two, into two separate lines that both come out of the, out of the book, really. Um, one is on the gig economy and, and Uber. And Lyft, and so I'm looking at ride-sharing companies, and uh, again, the experience of workers, the way that workers think about sort of the economic relations behind it, the importance of, of various factors in deciding um, what's the right decision for me, um, and whether or not you know um, workers are getting what they expect out of, out of those decisions. Uh, so that's one line of research, and the other one is actually into autonomous trucks. Um, so my my research into the labor process and the sort of detailed account, accounts of kind of how the work of trucking gets done has proved to be very um, important for people who are thinking about um, how you automate that work, but also how others are thinking about the consequences of automating that work. And so we now have, you know, the, the potential for millions of jobs, some argue, to be um, to be automated and thus lost. And so, um, and this is going to affect, you know, workers across communities and, you know, around the entire country. Um, and so what I'm working on now, actually, uh, with the Labor Center at Berkeley um, and Working Partnerships USA is a project to try to understand what are, if, if we have a given set of capabilities of this technology, how would it actually be used? Uh, how is it likely to be used within the labor process as it currently exists, or how might it transform that labor process? Um, because so far we've had a, an image of self-driving trucks as being something that is just going to, you know, be rolled out of a factory one day and it's going to be able to, you know, move freight from wherever you want it to um, start to wherever you want it to go. And that's, that's not going to happen because of the limitations of the technology and the sort of um, way that it works with mapping and, and other sorts of things. But it's also not going to, you know, be able to penetrate particular kinds of the market, uh, particular parts of the market as, as deeply as others uh, because of the economics behind what you get out of automating just the driving. And there's lots of other stuff that drivers do. Um, and so that's the other project that I'm working on is trying to figure out um, who's likely to be affected by autonomous trucks um, and then what we might think about doing uh, in response to that on the policy side um, if we're concerned, say, about, um, you know, something that looks more like Uber driving uh, happening in urban areas with lots of Amazon shipments moving, you know, uh, at, on the basis of hours rather than days. Um, what is that going to mean for our cityscapes um, and the workers who work in them? Do we want to have, say, regulations on 
times and the time people move, wages, um, the kinds of equipment that they're operating for air pollution and congestion, and as well as the working conditions of, of the drivers themselves. So that's the other that's the other line of, of research that's come come out of the book. Right. Well, those are great projects, and you have a, an excellent jumping-off point with the big rigs. So thank you so much, Steve, for, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Richard. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.